Section 54 of The Toilers of the Sea by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Chapter 4 A Preliminary Examination. Gilead was surrounded only by urgent needs, but the most pressing was to find in the first place an anchorage for his boat, then a shelter for himself. The Durand was settled down more on the port than on the starboard side. The right paddle-box was more elevated than the left one. Gilliatt climbed upon the right box. From thence he dominated the lower part of the reefs, and, although the gut between the rocks lying in a line with the broken angles behind the Douvre made many turns, Gilliatt was able to study the geometrical plan of the reef. He began with this reconnaissance. The Douvre, as we have already pointed out, were like two lofty gables marking the narrow entrance to a lane of small granite cliffs with perpendicular faces. It is not rare to find in primitive submarine formations these singular corridors which seem hewn out with a hatchet. This very tortuous defile was never bare, even at low tide. A very active current always traversed it from end to end. The abruptness of the eddies was good or bad according to the nature of the reigning wind. Sometimes it overcame the swell and made it fall, sometimes it exasperated it. This last effect was most frequently the case. An obstacle sets the sea in a fury and urges it on to excesses. Foam is the exaggeration of the waves. The wind in a storm undergoes the same compression in these narrow passages between two rocks and acquires the same malignity. It is the tempest in a state of strangulation. The immense breath is still immense and becomes acute. It is a club and a dart. It pierces at the same time that it crushes. Imagine the hurricane contracted and become a sharp draft through a crevice. The two chains of rocks, leaving between them this sort of sea street, descended lower than the Douvre in stages of gradually decreasing heights, and plunged together into the waves at a short distance away. There was another narrow channel, less elevated than the Douvre passage, but still narrower, which formed the eastern entrance to the defile. It was clear that the double prolongation of the two ridges of rock continued the street under the water as far as the man rock, placed like a square citadel at the other extremity of the reef. Moreover, at low tide, and this was the moment when Gilliatt was observing them, these two ranges of shoals showed their crests, some dry and all visible, arranged in an uninterrupted file. The man bounded and buttressed the entire mass of the reef, which was shored up at the west by the two douvres. The whole reef, from a bird's-eye view, presented an undulating chaplet, having the douvre at one end and the man at the other. The douvre reef, taken as a whole, was nothing else than the outcropping of two gigantic layers of granite, almost touching each other, and emerging vertically, like a crest of the ranges which lie at the bottom of the ocean. These immense ridges do exist outside of the abyss. The squall and the swell had torn this crest up into a saw. Only the top was visible. This was the reef. What the water concealed must be enormous. 
The alley into which the storm had flung the Durand was the space between these colossal layers. This lane, zigzag like a flash of lightning, was of nearly the same width at all points. The ocean had made it thus. The eternal tumult develops these eccentric regularities. A sort of geometry emerges from the waves. From one end to the other of the pass, the two walls of the rock presented to each other a parallel face at a distance which was almost exactly measured by the midship beam of the Durande. The hollow of the little Douvre, bent and curved over, had furnished a place between the two Douvres for the paddle-boxes. Anywhere else, the paddle-boxes would have been crushed. The double interior façade of the reef was hideous. When, during the exploration of the desert of water called the ocean, one arrives at the unknown things of the sea, all becomes uncouth and shapeless. What Gilead could perceive of the defile from the summit of the wreck inspired horror. In the granite gorges of the ocean there often exists a strange permanent impersonation of shipwreck. The defile of the Douvre had its own and a terrible one. The oxides of the rock had placed, here and there upon the cliffs, red patches resembling pools of clotted blood. It was something like the bloody oozings of a butcher's cellar. There was something of the carnal house in this reef. The rough marine stone, diversely colored, here by the decomposition of metallic amalgams composing the rock, there by mold, exhibited in places frightful purples, suspicious patches of green, vermilion splashes, awakening the idea of murder and extermination. One would have imagined it to be the bloody wall of a chamber where an assassination had been committed, and that the men crushed there had left traces of their fate. The perpendicular rock bore an indescribable imprint of accumulated agonies. In several places this carnage seemed to be still trickling. The wall was wet, and it seemed impossible to touch it with one's finger without drawing them back stained with blood. A blight of massacre appeared everywhere. At the base of the double parallel escarpment, scattered on a level with the water, or beneath the waves, or on dry land, in the undermined hollows, monstrous rounded boulders, some scarlet, others black or violet, resembled viscera. One would imagine them to be fresh lungs or rotting livers. One would have said that the bellies of giants had been emptied there, long red threads, which might have been taken for funereal exudations, striped the granite from top to bottom. Such aspects are frequent in the caverns of the sea. End of chapter 4 A Preliminary Examination